My name is Anthony P. Richards. I'm a pastor and I started this podcast channel to equip, encourage, inspire and challenge you to passionately live to your potential in Christ through the Word of God. For more information, you can go to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Welcome to another day as we continue our journey through the Word of God. And today we're continuing our journey through Matthew chapter 21, where we'll be looking at verses 12 to 27. We are now in Jesus' last week. His last week on earth, his last week of ministry before his crucifixion. And it's it's an amazing time because it reminds us of the range of emotions that Jesus went through on behalf of you and I, where he was received with praise, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then he weeps over the city of Jerusalem. And here he is now, after he has entered into Jerusalem, we pick up in verse 12, which is uh, an amazing place because Jesus, as soon as he goes to Jerusalem, where does he go? He goes straight to the temple. Jesus went into the temple of God and he drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. That's what he said. It, this is uh, distinct from the cleansing of the temple told in John chapter 2, verses 13 to 22, which actually happens towards the, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. But the purpose is the same, to drive out the merchants who were just cooperating with the priests. The priests allowed this to all happen. They allowed visitors to Jerusalem to be cheated by forcing them to uh, purchase approved sacrificial animals and currencies at very high prices. It was like, well, no, if you don't buy ours, which cost, you know, however many times the cost, sometimes up to 20 times, if you don't buy ours, then we can't accept your sacrifice. It was just pure making money. Barclay said this, a pair of doves could cost as little as five cents just outside the temple but 75 cents once you got inside the temple. That's 20 times, you know, roughly 20 times. Um, it's, it's, it's quite amazing when you think about it. Um, obviously, it's not quite 20. It's a little, it's a little less than that. And, but uh, the currency's kind of changed. You get the idea. It was probably between 15 and 20 times. The actual reality. Now, when you think about that, here's Jesus' anger being against all those who bought and sold because he included the buyers and the sellers together in one group. For him, they were the same. didn't matter whether you were a seller or a buyer. And what Jesus did here was important as an acted out principle more than what it actually accomplished because I don't think it ever, I don't think it just stopped them from then on, you know, after that time there was never anything, you know, uh, that happened in the, in the temple that was not what's supposed to happen. 
But it was Jesus telling us, no, if you want to know what my father's house is, it's not about this. It's as a house of prayer. That's what my father's house is all about. Spurgeon said, I do not believe we shall thoroughly purify any church by acts of parliament, nor reformation associations, nor by agitation, nor by merely any human agency. No hand can grasp the scourge that can drive out the buyers and the sellers, but that hand which once was fastened to the cross. Let the Lord do it and the work will be done, for it is not of man, nor shall man accomplish it. Jesus said, my house will be a house of prayer. The merchants, now what did they do? They operated in the outer outer courts of the temple, which was unfortunately for the Gentiles, if you were a Gentile, that was the only part of the temple you were allowed into. You weren't allowed into the next level. That was for Jewish people. So the one place that the Gentiles were allowed to go and actually pray and bring their sacrifice and do all the things that were holy, the one place had been turned into a marketplace. And, and, and not only a marketplace, but a dishonest one where there was a den of thieves. Now, Mark's record in the Gospel of Mark contains the more complete quotation of Jesus in reference to Isaiah 56 verse 7. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations uh, in Mark 11? And the point was that Isaiah had prophesied and Jesus demanded that the temple would be a place for all nations to pray, Jew and Gentile, to come together. It wasn't just for Jewish people. And the Gentiles shouldn't be uh, given any less of an experience just because they could only go to the outer courts. The activity of all those who bought, all those who sold in the outer courts made it impossible for the Gentiles to come and to pray and do what they wanted to do. Barclay said, in that uproar of buying and selling and bargaining and auctioneering, prayer was now impossible. So then we go on to verse 14. Then the blind and the lame came to him, to Jesus in the temple, and he healed them. It's very bold of Jesus to drive out the merchants and the money changers in the temple. I mean, that would have been bold to watch, okay? But it didn't discourage those who still had needs from coming to him. The blind and the lame were only allowed to go as far as the Gentiles in in the temple. They weren't allowed to go any further in. They, They couldn't go to the altar to sacrifice. So after purging the court of the the merchants and the robbers, Jesus ministers to the outcasts where that was the only place they were allowed to be. David Guzik, after driving out the money changers and the merchants from the temple courts, Jesus didn't establish the society for the cleansing of the temple. He's being a little facetious here. He got back to doing the business of the Messiah, a significant part of which was showing the power of God in the context of compassion and mercy. Verse 15. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And he said to them, do you hear what these are saying? That's what they said to Jesus. Do you hear? Can you hear? And he said, yes. Have you ever never read out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants? You have perfected praise. Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. Uh, 
they were indignant. What does indignant mean? It means they were annoyed with anger because it was unfair. How dare he? This is their response to the wonderful things he just did of healing people and to the praise of the little children that they had for Jesus in the temple courts. And the hypocrisy of the religious leaders is just there for all of us to see. The greed and the theft that was taking place in the temple didn't bother them, but Jesus being praised by the children totally just frustrated them, made them indignant. Now, it's important because this reminds us that these little children had a real relationship with understanding who Jesus was. Just like today, little children can have an understanding of who Jesus is. But they'll still be children. It doesn't make them mature adults. They just love Jesus in their simplicity of being a child. Jesus says to this response, Do you hear what these are saying? Jesus answered this question from the chief priests and the scribes, and the answer is very clear. He's like, yes, I heard what they're saying. It was perfected praise in the ears of my father. So what does he do? He leaves them and he goes out of the city to Bethany, which is where he sleeps for the night. Because at the time of Passover, you have to remember there's literally tens of thousands of people gathering in Jerusalem, trying to find somewhere to sleep that night, a little difficult. Basically, all the inns are full, okay? Bruce, at Passover time, quarters could not easily be had in the city, but the house of Martha and Mary in Bethany would be open to Jesus. So, what does he do here? What does he do? Uh, This is absolutely amazing when you think about what he does here. And uh, I'm just making sure that I... Keep a context of time because uh, I'm getting caught up in this. Um, so let's 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 continue on and uh, let's where are we going to read? Let's start at the continue of verse 18. Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, so he's gone and slept in, in Bethany for the night. Now he's come back in the morning. As he returned to the city, he's hungry, which is kind of interesting. And he sees a fig tree by the road and he comes to it and he found nothing on it but leaves. And he said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately, the fig tree withered away. Now, why was he hungry when he's just stayed with some friends in the home of Mary and Martha? Um, Maybe he just got up so early that he didn't have time for breakfast. Maybe he just took time to go and commune with his heavenly father and didn't take any time to eat. But he was human, which meant that he was capable of getting hungry. And hunger is a sign that he was healthy. So what happens? He sees this fig tree and he says, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Now, Jesus performs here one of his very few destructive miracles. This is where he curses the fig tree to wither away. Now, when he says, let no fruit grow on you ever again, What he's talking about is until the end of the dispensation of the church age. Now, we have to understand what the fig tree represents, okay? In the Old Testament, the fig tree is always representative of Israel, the nation of Israel, okay? The Jewish people. And they had not produced fruit. How had they not produced fruit? 
Jesus sees the fig tree. He's talking about Israel and he says, you have not produced fruit. Why? Because they had not accepted him as the Messiah. So Jesus said, because you have not accepted me as a Messiah, you will wither away and I will start the church age. At the end of the church age, you will have an opportunity to produce fruit once again. But the church era is now going to be for Jew and Gentile together. And for Israel, there is a final judgment that awaits at the end of the church era. Now, Jesus only performed two destructive miracles, if you want to call them that. Uh, one of them is this. The other is the, the destruction of the herd of pigs with, with the demons in them in Matthew chapter 8. And it's interesting that both of the destructive miracles that Jesus performed were not directed towards people. Now, why did he perform a destructive miracle on this fig tree? was because there was nothing on it but leaves. There was no fruit. The tree was basically a, a sign of false advertising. I have leaves but no fruit. Leaves but no figs. Which shouldn't be the case with a fig tree. Fig tree should have, if it's got leaves which means it's healthy, it should have fruit. Interesting, Spurgeon said this, the first Adam came to the fig tree for leaves to cover himself and the second Adam looks for figs and finds none. One's looking for leaves, one looking for figs. Jesus is here warning of the coming judgment upon the unfruitful Israel. It, it, it shows God's disapproval of people who are all leaves and no fruit. RT friends, the story is clear and simple and its point is obvious that what counts is not the promise made but the performance. Israel had so many promises and Jesus fulfilled the promises. But they didn't perform by producing fruit by accepting Jesus as their Messiah. So Jesus curses the fig tree. Fig tree immediately withers, like immediately, just brrr, there we go, right? So what happens to the disciples? And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? <laughs> and Jesus answered and said to them, assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Jesus explains that this miracle was really the result of a prayer made in faith. If you have faith and do not doubt, and then he encourages his disciples, to also have this kind of faith, trusting that God will also hear them. Whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. The promise of God's answer to the prayer of faith was made to the disciples. It wasn't made to the multitude. And that's a promise to those who are following Jesus. F.B. Meyer, we can only believe for a thing when we are in such union with God that his thought and purpose can freely flow into us, suggesting what we should pray for and leading us to that point in which there is a perfect sympathy and understanding between us and the divine mind of God. 
Faith is always the product of such a frame as this. So this is the point Jesus is making. When you're in communion with my heavenly Father, when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you will pray and ask for things that are in accordance with God's will. And so that's why I can confidently say it will be done because I know you'll be asking the things that you need to ask because you'll be in communion with my Father. Okay, so let's move on here. Now, when he came to the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching, and they said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? (laughs) But Jesus answered and said to them, Uh, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise, likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. (laughs) The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? I'm adding my own emphasis. And they reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, then we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, "Um, We do not know. (laughs) And he said, Well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. (laughs) Now, they confronted him as he's teaching. Now, you have to remember the day before, Jesus drives out all the money changers, merchants, Then he goes, stays with Mary and Martha, comes back, sees the fig tree, withers the fig tree, now goes into the temple, starts teaching. He doesn't care what they think. They're probably mad at him still for what he did the day before. So they go, what authority? They raise the question of Jesus' authority. And he raises the question of their competence to actually judge whether he should have that authority or not, where it comes from. Their ability to judge John the Baptist and his ministry was a measure of their ability to judge Jesus as well. He says, the baptism of John, where was it from? Carson, his question is far more profound. If the religious authorities rightly answer it, they will already have the correct answer to their own question, which they know. Okay, So they say, we do not know, when they actually did know. We do not know. They answered because they calculated the consequences, the political consequences of either answer. That They didn't seem to have any interest whatsoever in answering the question honestly. They only wanted to answer it cleverly. They showed that they were more interested in the opinions of the multitude rather than the will of God. So Jesus didn't answer their question to him. Morgan, they could not say of men for they were cowards. And they would not say of heaven, for they were hypocrites. Jesus kindly and compassionately met the needs of the hurting multitude, as demonstrated in verse 14, the blind and the lame. But Jesus did not show much patience with those who arrogantly questioned him, his authority, and they hoped to trap him with his own words. Jesus never fell into a trap. Never. So, what are our observations today? Jesus 
is still just days before his death. He's told the disciples, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be scourged. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to raise again on the third day. But he never stopped healing people. As long as he could, he was healing people. That's my first observation. He never stopped his ministry, even in the face of dire situations. Secondly, so many people try to ask clever questions of God and they want to have clever answers. And the only eternal questions that matter are the ones that God asks us. See, we've got all these questions for for God and then God says, let me ask you one question. (laughs) Uh, The question is, will you receive my son as the perfect sacrifice? That's all that really matters. That's the question that matters. Not all of our clever questions. I, I, I think I think a lot of people's cleverness leads them to their own destruction. I don't want I I believe hell is real. It's a real place. People are going to go there if they don't accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I don't want people to go there to hell because they were trying to be too clever. But we also don't need to be too clever in how we tell the gospel, share the gospel and the good news. Just just say it. <laughs> just let the power of the Holy Spirit convict people of whether it's true or not, rather than us trying to be clever. Let's just be simple. Let's understand that Jesus constantly reminded us of his compassion and his kindness of meeting the needs of hurting people. And that's what we are meant to do. How? How do we meet that need? By telling them about Jesus. No good if somebody gets healed and then still goes to hell. No good if somebody gets fed and they still go to hell. No good if somebody gets clothes, but they still go to hell. No good if somebody is like now got a full tummy, but they still go to hell. We must tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ and his gift of salvation. Yes, we must take care of those needs out of compassion and kindness. But don't forget that part of meeting people's needs is their eternal need of Jesus, which can only be satisfied through their acceptance of his gift of salvation. Heavenly Father, thank you for what you're teaching us. Thank you for what you're reminding us of as we read about this wonderful period of Jesus' ministry. And God, I pray that your house would be a house of prayer and that we would pray more in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. For more content, please don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Have a great day. Thank you.